Blog Talk Radio. Everybody, well, welcome to Suspense Radio. If that didn't get you going in the morning, we got some great authors for you to come up. I am your host, John Robb. We got Maureen Riches coming up. We got Revis Worthen coming up talking about their books. We are going to have a fabulous show. I want to remind you all, of course, um, that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. So please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their authors and their books. And also, um, we want to thank, of course, you all for listening, however, wherever, whenever you listen to the show. You can listen to all the shows on demand, or you can listen live right here um, like you are right now. Of course, on Tuesday, we will be back with Beyond the Cover with Jeff Ayers and I, and we are going to have Lisa Unger on the show then, and Stephen James is going to be back on next Friday um, also with his story, um, with his show, The, the, the Story Blender. So without any further ado, I want to jump into, we are talking to uh, Maureen Riches, and she is the author of the latest book called The Girl Who Wouldn't Die. Now, she's a U.K. author, and this book has already been out in the U.K. Uh, in her George McKenzie series. Actually, four books have been out in the George McKenzie series in the U.K. So this is book one that is finally out now, coming out into the United States. So we're very, very pleased to be able to bring her on to the show. So, Maureen, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me, John. Yes, I'm absolutely fine, thanks. It's, uh, it's quite a sunny afternoon here in the U.K., in, in uh, Manchester, where it's usually raining. Yeah. Also, so you're from Manchester, and, it's, yeah, normally it is kind of raining about this time of year, isn't it? It's getting close to – you're in the fall into the winter – Soccer is now taking yeah. hold, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always a fun time. Yeah, it is, and uh, unsurprisingly, I, I write uh, murder mysteries uh, set in places where the weather's terrible. <laughs> uh, well, hey, you know, but with the home of Black Sabbath, um, you can write nothing more than, you know, murder mysteries, I, I guess I would say. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so let's kind of get into it. Like I said, so right now you have four books in the George McKenzie series, but they've come out in the, in the U.K., and now, for the first yeah. time, we're able to see The Girl Who Wouldn't Die, uh, which is yeah. the first book in the series available in the United States. 
So why don't you give everybody a little bit about what you have going on in the book, and then we'll kind of talk about the series a little bit, because I'm sure all the other books will eventually come out. Um, and oh, with Amazon, will, you can go to the U.K. And... site and buy them if, if people want to also. So give us the uh, inside scoop into The Girl Who Wouldn't Die. Well, The Girl Who Wouldn't Die, um, it was a huge hit in the U.K. as my debut crime thriller. And it's, it's the first book um, involving Georgina McKenzie, who in, in this first book, she is an aspiring criminologist. So she's, she's kind of coming to the end of her studies at university. And uh, normally she's, she's at Cambridge University, but she's having this year in Amsterdam. Uh, because here in Europe, we do an exchange program. Uh, where you can go and study in another um, European country if you're at a British university. And uh, because she has this fantastic insight into how the criminal mind works, uh, when a bomb goes off in uh, the historic part of Amsterdam, Chief Inspector Van den Bergen, Paul Van den Bergen, who's a bit like Harry Hole, he's kind of a tall guy and uh, always a bit cynical and uh, troubled, although his trouble is um, health anxiety, of all things. But he looks to George to help solve the mystery of who is behind uh, this, this explosion. And in fact, uh, young men are appearing murdered in gruesome circumstances. And it doesn't take George long to work out that maybe these serial murders are linked to what is suspected as a, as a kind of suicide bombing. And um, so her and Paul van den Bergen, um, they set about trying to catch the killer, but the killer's got his eyes on her. So uh, it's, it's quite a gripping, fast-moving page-turner. And, um, and I did write it, I actually penned it in 2009 as my response to uh, Stig Larsson's uh, Millennium Trilogy, and George McKenzie is my answer to Lisbeth Salander, although she's very different. And I'm hoping that you U.S. readers um, will be clamoring for some of George because she really does have that uh, kick-ass daring do that you see more in U.S. thrillers. So that's yeah, it very gritty, very gritty. I would say. Yes. Yeah, they are, yeah, kind of, and. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're quite dark, but there's some there's a little bit of dark humour running through there too to lighten the moment. Because this is really a serial killer thriller, although the series and there's actually five books in the series, happily for US readers. Um, the overarching theme is is transnational trafficking, so it's it's not light subject matter, and you're dealing with cities uh, that have a really seedy underbelly, you know. Yes. I mean, the one thing that I think that I notice more from U.K. crime thrillers to U.S. crime thrillers are in the U.K. things are a little bit, a lot more psychological. There's a lot more mental aspect, I think, going with it. Not that, of course, they're not in the U.S., but I feel that there's a lot more of that psychological kind of aspect uh, that, you, that a lot of U.K. writers mm -hmm. like to do. And it's kind of the same here. I mean... Uh, it's it's a very it's a very insightful kind of psychological serial killer thriller kind of book kind of wrapped into mm. one. Would you agree? Yeah, I think it crosses the line between all-out thriller because there's a, there's a lot of action in it, and like right. you say, there's the psychological aspects because George um, she's going to be a criminologist. 
So it really is an investigation into the mind of someone who's a psychopath. She's not, but obviously the the, uh, the bad guy in the book is, I hasten to add. Um, but it, I like to explore that kind of gray area um, between the good and the bad and, and examine why people do the bad things that they do. So it's, it's not just looking at... Uh, someone gets murdered, we have to find who did it, it's a terrible thing. But looking into why why the murderer has done such a dreadful thing, what's in their past that triggered this violence? Um, so I think that we Brits in particular, um, we're obsessed with knowing uh, what makes the criminal mind tick. And the book that started my lifelong love of crime thrillers and, and mysteries was actually The Silence of the Lambs. And um, oh, yeah. when I read that, you know, 20 odd years ago, nearly 30 years ago by Thomas Harris, I just absolutely fell in love with his uh, depiction of uh, Hannibal Lecter and the the kind of warped, crazed mind of of James, James Gum um, and what triggered his need to, to murder people for their skins. You know, that kind of thing for me is, is fascinating and I think readers love that too. Yeah, I mean, and, and that, that's the thing. It, it's almost like the UK is the why, and the US is more along the lines of the how, um, because you kind of yeah. see a lot of that. You know, you, you kind of see a lot, a lot of that in the US, and 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 I prefer more of the psychological because I'm drawn more to the Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot kind of mysteries where it's like, you know, inside the criminal mind to kind of figure out. Not only you know who did it, but why and what was the purpose of it? Because you know, I always tell a lot of authors, even though you know your killer is killing people, they're not just batshit crazy. They're never batshit crazy. They always have a reason for doing what they're doing, and by trying yeah. to let the reader understand why that is, you actually were able to understand the the character more. But when you're creating that kind of why and that psychological around it. Were there certain aspects that you wanted to make sure that not only that, you know, George got across, but the killer got across in kind of a personality ways that when people were done finishing the book, they kind of had a better understanding of who both of them were, and especially Georgina moving forward because, you know, the series is continuing? Yeah, sure. Um, what I wanted to create uh, when I was writing this, and what I hope U.S. readers will enjoy, is a really complex puzzle. So you're right, it is all about why and who are these people and, and why do they matter to the reader. I personally don't think that you can invest in a character when you're reading a book unless they're quite complex and you understand what's going on in their life and you really root for them. Even Even some of the bad guys in my books, I think that the reader tends to start rooting for because... People do terrible things, usually because they've had terrible pasts. So even though you hate what they've done, you sympathize with them on a certain level. Um, but, but what I love about reading uh, crime novels is being able to take several strands of a story and work out how the mystery fits together like a jigsaw puzzle. And developing the characters like that and giving them these rich backstories is a way of helping the reader to solve that puzzle so although there's there's an awful lot of action going on and you know chases and everyone's on the edge of uh of life-threatening situations um you've constantly got this puzzle to solve um and i, I hope that readers will enjoy that it's quite satisfying for me
And you know, and that's and that's very important. And you just said something that's very important too. Is I don't think a lot of fans understand. You have to be kind of satisfied yourself to kind of instead of just going to the typewriter, banging out some words and saying, "Okay, fine, here's a book," you know, blah blah blah. It it would have no passion and no feeling. So, what is the biggest thing now that you're four books into the series? Even though the United States is just again, I just want to make sure people know we're getting the first one here. The girl, um, the girl who wouldn't die. So why or, or how much passion, you know, do you have every time when you kind of get back to sit at the, at the typewriter or the, the computer and start writing again um, that, that brings you back to this series? What, what, what kind of draws you in all the time? Well, I think it's the characters. I don't think that you can sustain a long-running series without having um, – really well-drawn characters uh, that you believe in. I, as a writer, my characters come to life for me. So George feels real, and Paul Bergen, who you'll discover uh, she she has a very close involvement with, and not just on a professional level. I don't mind uh, tipping you that wink. Um, <laughs> you, you, you just... They are so 3D to me, and when I sit at my computer to start a new novel... Um, I want to find out what happens to them next. So although I do plot in advance and I know what's going to happen in the course of, of a book when I start writing it, um, I leave enough space for the magic to happen. So I do find my characters surprise me. And George is such a big personality. You know, she's this this smart-ass, sassy, smart-mouthed girl from a really rough uh, housing project in in the U.K., and she has this very difficult family and difficult background. Um, and yet she's she's studying in the kind of ivory tower of Cambridge University, and she becomes an academic and works with the police as a criminologist as the series goes on. Um, you know, she's, she's always the outsider. She never quite fits. And um, I'm a great supporter of the underdog. And it's the same with uh, sidekick Paul van den Bergen. He always gets the... the the kind of raw deal off his bosses uh, because he doesn't quite toe the line politically inside the Dutch police force. Um, so I'm constantly, I'm constantly wanting them to win but needing to put them through their paces and make life as difficult as possible because, you know, we have a saying over here, I'm sure writers do in the States as well, that you need to chase your characters up a tree and then throw rocks at them. <laughs> I say I've never heard that one before, but that was hilarious. Yeah, it's a good one. It sounds like something Peter James would say. That's for sure. Yeah, I, probably somebody I know has heard him say that. In, I did yeah. meet Peter James the other year um, at Harrogate Crime Festival, which is a big deal here. And uh, yes. yeah, he's a man for some witty anecdotes. Yeah, and then and now do you also go to the one in Bristol Crime Fest? Have you do you go to both of those? Yes, I do go to yeah, I go to Crime Fest every year. Like I say, these George Mackenzie thrillers have been um, they've been massive yeah, they've been hits here in, in yeah they've been it's about three years. And like I say, the fifth one, the girl who got revenge, came out over here in April this year. Um, but the U.S. readers are going to be lucky if they like the series. Um, they're going to be released within the next six months. You'll have all five of them. So they're coming out one month after the other. Oh, that's nice. So you won't even have to wait to find out what happens next, really. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because, you know, people today have no patience. Um, no, that's, <laughs> that's true. And I don't know about you, John. But... Sorry. 
Well, yeah, I mean, people just have no patience. I mean, you know, you put out this book and people read it, and then the next question is, okay, when's the next book's coming out? And it's like, Jesus, give me a chance. You know, not many people can write more than one book a year. Um, a lot of people only do one, and some can do two, depending. But, I mean, it, it takes some time to get – but I just love how, you know, the impatience is like, well, where's the next one? Where's the next one? Like, you know, like you can yeah. just type it out and say, oh, I'll have it for you in a week. I know. Well, I mean, I, I'm quite lucky. I do write fast, and I do do two books a year. Um, so it has meant that I've got this this backlist of uh, of novels that I can now put out. You know, that are being published in the states very quickly. Um, and I think when you get into a series and you get hooked on it, and I think that the girl who wouldn't die is one of those addictive books. Um, you just want to. You want more and more, don't you? I know I do. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. a big fan of of Joan Erbo, and oh, um, yeah. when I first discovered Harry Hole, I just wanted more and more. And it kind of took him years before people really knew him in the states. I mean, he was of course big over in in Europe, and then people didn't you know didn't really know who he was until a couple of years later. So it does take some time uh, when you kind of come across the pond. We're happy to be able to try to bridge some of that because. You know, we'll go wherever mm-hmm. to find an author. We don't care what country they're from. We want good stories. Yeah. And we want good authors is what we're looking for. But um, Well, but amazingly, I do, I wanna... you, can tell, you can tell that there's a thirst for that kind of thing amongst oh, U.S. Yeah. readers. And um, it's just a shame that sometimes, it, you know, it takes a while for those stories to get across the Atlantic. But when, when they do land, like hopefully now with The Girl Who Wouldn't Die, um, there's a great thirst for stuff that isn't necessarily set in the US because I think that the themes of of criminality and striving and in in my book's case um family transnational trafficking they all they all travel they travel well I want to kind of get in so when you decided that you know what this was going to be a series that you were going to get into and you were going to start writing was was it Georgina that, that that got you excited about it? Was it a subject matter that you first wanted to kind of uh, you know kind of broach and kind of research for yourself? What was it that that got you in to start writing uh, this series? Well, the funny thing was, uh, I, I went to Cambridge University and did languages there, so hence the connection with the Netherlands uh, and Amsterdam, where a lot of the action takes place. So it divides, you know, the book kind of flits between London, England, Cambridge, and Amsterdam. So I I wanted to write uh, a thriller about a, a kind of really strong female protagonist that was an academic. Because back in the day, I wanted to do a PhD, a doctorate in criminology. I was I was really very curious as to why people commit crime, and um, and what sort of people were in. British prisons. So George, in many ways, um, when I started writing her, there was a lot of me in her because she she grows up in this, you know, this kind of tough urban housing project and and has a very poor family, um, which you know I grew up on a, a rough housing project in in the UK too. So there's lots of autobiographical stuff in there, but she does the stuff that I never did. Um, so. When I was writing this first thriller with her in it, um, I wanted her to fulfil my dreams in many ways. Um, so she gets to go on to be an academic and go and study in prisons and help the police track down, um, you know, multiple murderers and transnational traffickers, 
and smugglers and and a whole bunch of crazy guys and girls. <laughs> and you know, secondary characters and stories I always find are you know really fascinating. Aside from the villains, the villains and the secondary characters are the ones that always kind of draw me into the story uh, because the main character, of course, is, is always you know throughout. But I always like the contrast between the secondary characters and the villain. So which secondary yeah. character do you feel in the book, The Girl Who Wouldn't Die, was one of those surprise characters, one of those ones that you might have outlined out but really had a bigger voice than you intended them to have when you first started to write? Well, in, Paul, Inspector Paul van den Bergen, he was just meant to be the guy investigating the explosion in Amsterdam. Um, but he turned out... Um, he turned out to be something rather different because um, George is having this kind of young romance with her study partner, Ad Carolser, um, who's, you know, hot young guy on her course. And yet this much 20-year-old, you know, 20 years older than her, this chief inspector comes along and they have instant chemistry. And I realized that he was going to be a much stronger force in the book um, than I'd originally planned even though there was this huge age gap, uh, George and, and Paul get along so well and are both kind of prickly, cynical types that people struggle to to get close to. And he has this um, outrageous health anxiety, so he's constantly fearing he's going to die, even though he's kind of this big, you know, six foot five, physically able police guy who's got years of experience under his belt. He's so traumatized by the death of his father from lung cancer um, that he, it gives him a kind of vulnerability um, that I wasn't expecting. And I wanted to find out more about his background. And then I discovered when I was writing him that, you know, he's a divorced man and has this uh, relationship with his daughter who's, you know, she's quite demanding. And this this whole avenue opened up for me to concentrate on this secondary character and have different stories evolving because of how his life is. And and George's backstory as well, some of the people in her life appear in subsequent novels, The Girl Who Broke the Rules and The Girl Who Walked in the Shadows, and they become central part of the story. Um, and that is the beauty of having a series where your subsidiary characters um, are interesting. You make them interesting and they become real for you. You know, and as you continued on through the series, and of course, again, we're only going to get the first one right now, but thank mm. God, you know, hopefully in the next five months we'll have all of them here in the United States. How did you kind of grow yourself as an author throughout the books? I mean, when you kind of wrote The Girl Who Wouldn't Die, and then you kind of went on to the to the next books in the series, how did you progress yourself as an author, not the story and so, but what will people notice from you going forward? I think I became braver uh, as a crime writer because I used to write children's fiction. I was published uh, by HarperCollins in the UK um, with a historical children's fiction series for seven-plus-year-olds. Um, and when I started writing The Girl Who Wouldn't Die, it was my first foray into adult crime fiction. Um, and... She's at university, so there's still this kind of youthful element to it. And I, I liked that um, because 
she could do the things that as a middle-aged woman I couldn't you know I can't bend over without grunting unfortunately whereas George can run a couple of blocks and not break a sweat um but by the second and third books I'd I'd kind of embraced the very adult gritty nature of what I was writing so I think readers moving on to from the girl who wouldn't die to the girl who broke the rules and the girl who walked in the shadows it they'll notice that the stories become even more complex and darker, but that they're more confidently a suspense novel for adults, you know, dealing with international trafficking and some serious crime. Um, But they're also about people's families and lives. So I, I think that readers will just find that the series becomes more confident and that the themes all cohere quite nicely because I I got into the stride as you do, right? And was that hard for you as you know not not as an author but just as a person to kind of have to get into that darkness of the world that you know like you said of the trafficking and and those kinds of things when you're researching and and finding out about this and then having to write about it how does that affect you as just a person? Well, some of what you research on the internet is is very, very dark indeed, especially um, when you get to The Girl Who Walked in the Shadows. There's, uh, you know, that, that kind of tackles the issue of um, of child trafficking um, and paedophile rings, although it's done sensitively, I hope, and was very re- well received. So I, I've been dealing with dark topics, but I was always careful to kind of use academic articles as my source materials so that they're a bit detached and dry and I put my own action and imagination into them I really didn't need to see anything more unsavory than that you know Uh, because you worry about your search history that you don't want that governmental knock on your door (laughs) saying what the hell are you researching here exactly your IP your your internet provider is going to start sending out notices exactly you've got to be so careful but well, I mean, the girl who wouldn't die has got, you know, this suspected uh, terrorist attack. So I had to be really careful about researching because, yeah. you know, we're like you guys. We're very sensitive about researching anything about fundamentalism or suicide bombing. So that was that was tricky. But oddly, as I was writing these books, in my personal life, I was going through the, the worst of times. Uh, my mother got uh, lung cancer for the second time, rather like Van den Bergen's dad did. Um, and, um, and so I had to go with her as an only child uh, through a year of going to the hospital for chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And then sadly, she did pass away in 2016. And um, it was a very hard time. And in the midst of that, I had a very bad head injury and was left quite ill for four months. And um, to make matters even worse, uh, I got divorced. <laughs> so oh, it's geez. just been agony. And it was it was constant drama um, in the worst sense of the word. Um, so I poured all that anguish into my writing. And, you know, you can, you can read it and see it on the page. Well, I'll tell you, it has been fascinating to speak with you here about this series. Where's the best place... For everyone to find out about more information about you, give out all your nice social media and all your uh, on your website sure. and everything for everybody. Um, well, you can find The Girl Who Wouldn't Die. That's available exclusively on Amazon. It's only 99 cents. Woohoo! Um, 99 my cents. website. Sorry? I said 99 cents. That is always good. 
that's cheaper than chips, as we say over here. Um, yeah. My website is Marnie Riches. That's M A R N I E R I C H E S dot com. And on Twitter, you can find me at Marnie underscore Riches. And uh, on Facebook, you can come and find me, Marnie Riches Author. Um, so I am on Instagram, but rarely. Uh, that's that middle-aged technology thing. Um, <laughs> I, I just am slightly scared by <laughs> Instagram. But, yeah, yeah, you can find me on, on Twitter. And, yeah. um, you know, the book's being well-received. People are reading it and enjoying it. So, um, it, you know, it's a fabulous sleuthing duo that you won't have seen before. And Georgina McKenzie, well, let's hope that she um, pushes Lisbeth Salander into a corner. We'll see. Oh, well, Marnie, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It has been an absolute joy to speak with you about the series, and I'm always excited when we get, um, you know, these first glimpses into something that UK fans have been enjoying now for a little while, and now we finally get on in the party. You know, it might be a little late, but, you know, we're at least we're in the party. I'm really excited, and I hope you guys enjoy it, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks, John. Well, thank you so much, and enjoy, and we will talk with you soon. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is Maureen Richards, and the book is called The Girl Who Wouldn't Die. Uh, it is the first book in her Georgina McKenzie series, even though five books have now been out on the U.K. Luckily, we're going to get all of those in the next five to six months here over here, but make sure that this is something that you put on your radar and um, and check out with her series and uh, – uh, put yourself, you know, 99 cents. I mean, try it out. Get yourself involved and, and get yourself into that one uh, right away. Um, we're going to take a short break. We're going to be back with our next guest, uh, Revis Wortham, to talk about gold dust. So in the meantime, listen to this.
welcome everybody again after the break. Um, we want to thank you all for staying with us here, and of course, we are very pleased to bring our good friend uh, to the show. We met him on his debut book uh, quite some time ago in um, in New York for Thriller Fest, and now seven books into his Red River Mystery series. It is awesome. For those of you who go to Thriller Fest or go to the conferences, he's the man with the hat. When you see that hat, baby, you know it's Revis Worsham in the house. So, Revis, we want to thank you so much for coming in. How you doing? I'm doing great, John. How are you doing today? Hey, man, we're doing fascinating. We're doing awesome. We want to thank you so much. It's been too long to have you on the show, so it's great to uh, be able to talk with you here again and, uh, you know, dive back into Red River Mystery Series with Gold Dust. Well, well, thanks. It has been a long time since you and I last talked. Uh, several books have come out. This uh, Goldust is book number seven in the Red River series. And in addition to that, I now write a thriller series called The Sunny Hawk Thrillers that are contemporary stories set in Texas. And there are two of those. And so I'm staying pretty busy these days. Now, Revis, I gotta say, can you get closer to your phone? You're a little, you're coming in a little, a little hard of hearing, just a little bit. Well, this I, I'm right up against it. It might oh, be. Oh, there you go. Now I got gotcha. you. I got it. Good, good. I just had to shift Much over. Better. I'm sitting in the truck out in the parking lot. <laughs> That'll work. Hey, you know what? Sometimes I sit in weird places to do interviews too. I was sitting in the, I was sitting in the parking lot of the Hall and Oates concert interviewing Laurel K. Hamilton. So it happens, man. You do what you got to do in this game. <laughs> Yes, you do. <laughs> to make it work, you do what you have to do. That's absolutely right, John. Exactly. All right, man. So, gold dust. So, why don't you tell us about gold dust, and then we're gonna, and then we'll we'll start going back in history a little bit and uh, hit the series. Oh, we can do that for sure. Uh, gold dust came about uh, based on a story that I read uh, several years ago about a, a CIA experiment in nineteen. 19- in, back in 1950, in which the CIA and the, and the U.S. Navy uh, sprayed a, a benign bacterial agent across the city of San Francisco to test wind currents and, and uh, what, uh, what the wind and the, this benign bacteria would do in the event of biological warfare. And it came to light in the, in the 70s, and they finally fessed up to it after some people were killed and they were taken to court over it, uh, and, and, and the, the events came out. And as usual, when I'm writing about this tiny little community in northeast Texas, uh, Sooner Springs, I always think about what could happen if something like that would happen to uh, rural folks back in the 1960s. And this is this is uh, late 1968 um, in in Sooner Springs, Texas, northeast Texas. And so I, I think what what could happen if somebody sprayed an agent called gold dust over nor- the northern part of the state to test wind cr- the, the northern wind currents uh, drift uh, drift an agent maybe back down toward Dallas if possible and so with that I um, I started out with a crop duster in, in the novel spraying uh, a, a substance that had been uh, had been brought to him by um, a couple of CIA agents test these wind currents but at the same time there's a lot going on in, in this tiny little community uh I have, I have two protagonists that are now 14 years old pepper and top and pepper is, is a precocious little girl and she is is growing up the hormones are kicking in and she gets crossways with a uh, young lady that arrives in the small community and tells the lady that she has found a gold escutcheon 
uh, Escudo, I'm sorry, Gold Escudo, uh, somewhere nearby, and that is based on a true story that uh, I have heard all my life up in Lamar County that uh, Spaniards were attacked by Indians up near a little natural uh, pond called Palmer Lake, and they buried their gold there. Of course, you know, you hear these these myths all the time. Yeah, and so, Oh yeah, yeah, and gold rush, and, and and so Pepper starts a gold rush at the same time. While there are two other plot lines running through this novel, it got complicated pretty quickly. And uh, we have everything from uh, cattle rustlers to bank robbers to uh, to people who are desecrating uh, Indian burial sites. So gold dust got got real big real fast. And I've been told by a number of people this is their favorite novel of the series since the very first one came out. And now, do you think, now this is the seventh book, and when you kind of look back to, uh, what was it, Rock in the Hole, or the Rock Hole, the Rock Hole, um, when yeah. you kind of look back now until then, and you kind of see yourself as an author, uh, do you think that you are, you know, changed in a, in, in a way where, you know, not only are your, are your books bigger, your stories, just your writing, everything just got a little bit more? Absolutely. Oh, if a writer and a writer has to 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 write every day, and an author has to write every day, uh, you get better. It, you, you become more polished, and you learn the tricks of the trade in, in in weaving stories together. The Rock Hole was a very simple story, but it was a, it was a good one. It had been com- it has been compared a number of times to To Kill a Mockingbird. So it, it's 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 a simple plot line, but it's it's very powerful. As I've gotten gotten more experienced in writing, and I I have spoken to a number of people and 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 held workshops, I have learned to to create a, a, a much larger world than than I first created when I when I when I began writing. So, the gold dust is 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 more expansive. It's richer in texture, and it. And as the the, the storyline and the characters progress, you get more background in, uh, on these folks, and you get more of their lives and, and the life that was going on in the 1960s. You know, those are, it, we think there's a lot going on these days, uh, but there, the 1960s were very turbulent with civil rights, uh, the Vietnam War. The rock and roll was getting dark at that time, and, and yeah. it was getting darker in the late 1960s. So all of it, all of it combines to give you a, a much more flavorful novel of, of what it was like growing up back in the 60s. Nice, yeah, and I mean, definitely stuff got darker. I mean, we were just talking with the author from Manchester, and I was like, "Oh, Black Sabbath territory. Here we go." <laughs> yeah, and, so, and, that, and that's the, the beauty of writing a, a series. You get to watch these kids grow up. You know, uh, the first novel was 1964, and they were listening to the Beatles, who had just hit town. You know, it was it was a great thing for them. Well, now in the late 1960s, you know, you've got uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and, and Led Zeppelin coming in, and Jimi Hendrix. The world's changing in, in every way possible, and you get to watch that happen through the eyes of these two children at the same time you also get to watch it through the eyes of ned parker and miss becky who uh who are, are now back then i thought of them as old people because they're based on my grandparents but i am of that age today so I, it's not that old anymore not when you look at it from these eyes <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean, and then you decided well you know this series wasn't enough red river mystery shit let's start another one and so you decided to go into, you know, the Sunny Hawk series. And now was this more? And and I'm just going to jump over here because you got a couple books in there. But 
was that more of an outlet to explore something else as an author, or you know, what was the the, the thought process behind wanting to do that? It was an outlet to let me grow even more. I, I'm writing these historical mysteries in the Red River series, and I love them, and I'm, in, I'm invested in these for, for some time to come. But I've always wanted to write thrillers, and when I had the opportunity to, to create the Sunny Hawk series, and it's a contemporary Texas ranger who lives out in, in the Big Bend area in Marfa, Texas, or Alpine. I, I, I changed the names of everything, so I created my own little town called Ballard, but it's a combination of Marfa and Alpine out, out in West Texas. Uh, you get to see Sonny Hawk, who, who deals with, with uh, criminals in the old-fashioned way of the old-time Texas rangers. You know, one riot, one ranger is all it takes, and when Sonny Hawk shows up, he takes care of business, and so this has given me the opportunity to to write a different kind of of story, much much faster paced than the Red River novels. It it takes off uh, like a rocket ship, and it never slows down until the very last page. So I, I do have the opportunity to do two novels a year now. Uh, the the new Hawks War, the second Sunny Hawk, came out uh, around June the first, and the and the new uh, Red River novel, Goldust, just came out on September 4th of this month. So uh, being able to create two different worlds is is, is fantastic, and it's, it's a lot of fun. I, but I work harder now than I've ever worked before. I retired from my from 35 years in public education uh, almost eight years ago, and I thought I worked pretty hard then. But doing this really keeps me on my toes. But it's fulfilling, and it's fun, and I think my, my fans are really enjoying what I'm what I'm putting out. Awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I just thought it funny, of course, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, why not? Why not write two? So, but now you're doing this full time. I mean, this is your full time job right now as being an author. So that gives you the ability to kind of, even though it's difficult to write two books, I don't know if a lot of people really understand that it's difficult to write two because I think the problem that Amazon and some of the ebooks and stuff is have is that you have a lot of self published authors that all of a sudden they'll throw a book out every three months and then people are wondering, well, why can't like you do it or why can't you know, Lee Child do it or Karen Slaughter do it? And there's a big difference. Your books are actually edited. Their books are not. Um, you know, and I mean, it's just, I mean, self-published authors just goes to show, I mean, eight times out of ten, if they're not working at it, eight times out of ten, those books are crap. And I have no problem in saying it because they are. Um, they don't go through the process. They don't go through the research. They don't go through the edit. They're just trying to throw words on the page and hopefully get a couple bucks a month to supplement an income, but it's not a very good read. So, uh, you know, that, that's the thing that I will kind of say to you is you, you're kind of doing this full time to have the ability to be able to do two series at a time now, right? Exactly, and I've always, even from the outset, when I was much, much younger, back in the the, the early 70s, the late 70s, when I thought I could write, and I couldn't because I wasn't polished enough. I didn't have, I had not found my writing voice at that time. Uh, even back then, I wanted to be traditionally published. What we had in those days was something called a vanity press, and you paid to have your books published. Right. But I had I had read enough of those books in the past that they weren't as polished as what I would like. Now I'm not saying that, it, that my books are error free. There's no way to create a book that's completely error free with typos or whatever. But you're, you're absolutely right. My books go through a, a, an extensive editing process. The the continuities there. The books are are the best that I can produce, and that's what I always wanted to do is is put out a quality product that people would come back to. Uh, year after year, as, as as the books came out, you know, I'm, I'm I'm 
producing two a year. Uh, I might be able to do three, but I am not just throwing words on the page. I am creating. Uh, I'm creating a world that that readers will want to read in in the future. They want they will want to buy the books, read them, put them on the shelf, and then take them down at another date and read them again. That's that's the kind of thing that I've always uh, striven for. And it, it's it's working now. I'm, I'm getting a great following. Uh, I'm getting recognition on there, so that people you know people tell me to write faster, but you can only write as fast as possible. But it's leading to other things too. I just I was I was just contacted the other day. I I have the honor of interviewing uh, the bestseller author James Lee Burt uh, in January, and you don't get that from from self publishing. You get that from from paying your dues and and working hard at a craft right. that to some people looks very simple and easy. But it does have its moments. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, you got paying your dues is, is always a big thing. And you know, we talked music before, and I think that a lot of people in today's music don't know what that means. But of course, we know what that means when we're when you're looking at bands from the '60s and the '70s and into the '80s. Those guys paid their dues. You know, they played the raunchiest clubs of 10, 12, 15 people <laughs> before they were actually able to hit, you know, arenas and whatnot. And that's the same thing in kind of writing. You know, you, you go and you do your first book, and it's not going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. You know, of course, uh, very rarely does anything like that ever happen. I mean, that is a massive undertaking if it ever does, only a handful of times. So, you know, you might sell 1,000 copies or 2,000 copies, whatever it is, and then you start growing and then you start getting a following and then you start finally, you know, getting yourself out there as, as you kind of write the books. And, you know, how's this seven-year journey been for you? It's It's been fantastic. I've always wanted to write even from, from the time I was a little kid. When I was 10 years old, I was I was writing little short stories and sending them to Reader's Digest and, 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 and little magazines trying to trying to – get myself published because i've always wanted to do it so it's been it's been a long journey i it, it, it's i really seriously got after it in the late 70s trying uh, nothing came about i would send the i would send the short stories off uh they would come back uh, with a rejection notice just thank you but uh keep trying and i did that um for years in 1988 I was sitting in a meeting, one of those boring meetings that uh, you have to be in, but it has nothing to do with you, one of those kinds of uh, events. I was sitting in a meeting next to a young lady, and, and all of a sudden the people that I had been reading uh, came to mind. I was, I was bored out of my head, and I, 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 I was reading a, a Donald E. Westlake novel. Uh, I don't recall which one, but Donald E. Westlake uh, is, is a fantastic mystery and, and mystery, mystery and humor writer. And I was I was reading an author named Robert Rourke, who was a was a huge writer for magazines and novels back in the 50s and 60s, early 60s. And uh, I was reading uh, at the same time a guy a, a book by a guy named uh, uh, Patrick McManus, who was one of the funniest writers you've ever read in your life. And that day in that meeting, those three guys gelled in my mind, and they created my writing voice, which uh, I, I immediately sold to a local newspaper as a as a newspaper column, a humor column, and uh, the Paris News in Northeast Texas in Lamar County. And from there, I my my newspaper columns expanded until I was writing for over 50 newspapers in the state of Texas, and I was talking to King Features Syndicate, who was who had called me and said we're going to make you the outdoor dave barry which i was 
I was excited wow. about, and I that that's where I was. That's where I wanted to be. I was wanting to get that kind of a exposure and distribution across the nation. Uh, it's just, it, at that exact same time, though, if you remember, a little thing called the internet came in and immediately killed off all, a, a number of newspapers. And, and the first thing that newspapers did when they started losing their ads is they started dropping columnists. So I lost all the way down to three papers that I still write for. I've been writing newspaper columns for 30 years. I've written almost three, almost 2,000 newspaper and uh, magazine articles in that time. But that allowed me, like we were talking about, that allowed me to polish my craft. And, and and I still write for those papers. I still write for Texas Fishing Game Magazine. I write every day in Polishing my craft allowed me to start that first Red River novel that uh, that I began writing way back in probably 2001, and uh, finally got it published in 2011. So it was a long road. It was a long road to hoe, road to hoe. But you know, when you, it's, as you said, you remember the old days in the radio when somebody came out, he was that one hit wonder maybe, or, or that got that one great album. They didn't come out of nowhere. Those people had paid their dues. They had written. They would written for years. And if if you come to the any writers conference and talk to the, to the writers uh, that would more than love to sit down and visit with you, they will all tell you the same story. They they've tried. They worked at it. They polished their craft until they finally found a pub, an agent and a publisher that would pick them up. And that's that's how I always wanted to do it. And I've been very fortunate in in in, in getting the recognition through that kind of that kind of. Um, uh, publishing outlet uh, as opposed to Amazon publishing or any of the other self-publishing venues that are out there. And I tell everybody, if you really want to make it, if you really want to, to become an author, uh, you have to, you have to work at it. You have to go to the conferences, but you also need to look at traditional publishing. Yeah. In some way or form, uh, traditional publishing is, is good in the aspect, like I said, of the editing. Now, if you want to be a very good self-published author and write really good books, you know, you need to go. You 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 need to pay somebody to edit your book. I mean, I say the biggest the biggest word in in, in being an author is editing. Um, either you do it or you don't, and that's the difference of either you sell or you don't. Um, and you yeah. know, you can be self-published, but you got to invest in yourself. And you know, this is a business. This is a business like selling. You know, like like a laundromat or a convenience store or whatever it is, you have to invest in it to make it work. And what you know, Warren Buffett's always said the best investment you can ever make is invest in yourself. Um, and I think Mark Cuban and any of the other ones will kind of say the same thing. You have to invest in yourself if you really want to, you know, be successful and go out there and do it. You just can't half-ass it. So, I mean, what? And you know, and the thing is, we can talk about you know a little bit, you know, music again when. You can change, you know, who you kind of are. I mean, you know, you didn't start out writing this kind of stuff. You kind of morphed into, you know, writing mysteries and then getting kind of, you know, into these, into this character and finally getting comfortable with this kind of um, surroundings. And then you kind of jumped out into Sonny Hawk because, you know, you got more confident. I mean, I dare anybody to go back and listen to early Michael Bolton. You'd be shocked at what you might hear <laughs> of what he originally used to sound like. He wasn't didn't sound like, you know, time, love, and tenderness. His first three albums were heavy metal rock albums. I mean, yes. you know, the, the guitarist for Kiss was his guitar player, Bruce Kulick. I mean, he has I – mean, so you get some weird things in there. But, you know, how, how have you – how do you see yourself evolving later? I mean, are you – I could see you being somebody who is writing with somebody 
Um, has that ever crossed your path yet? Have you ever had the opportunity to be a co-writer with, you know, like a major, you know, number one New York Times bestselling author or stuff like that came up? Because, you know, you could do something with James Lee Burke. I mean, you guys are in the same realm. J, you know, C.J. Well, Fox, something like that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that for, for that compliment. Uh, I I have not been approached by anyone to, to date, but you know that that's always a possibility. I'm, in fact, I'm I'm having lunch. I'm sitting in the parking lot of a restaurant here in Dallas, having lunch with a best-selling author, a uh, uh, good friend of mine, Mark Cameron, who started oh. out writing the same way I did, uh, writing thrillers. And Mark is now. Uh, the uh, the new Tom Clancy and so you know he he's writing he's writing for them so that's the kind yeah. of thing that that, that that you can hope for I'm gonna I'm just gonna continue to be me I'm gonna continue to write my my novels uh, and polish them and and become a better writer I hope we all make mistakes as, as we go along I've, I've made a couple of mistakes in my writing that uh, that I think a more experienced writer would have seen. Uh, for example, in in the new Red River book, I've got a character that I'm bringing back. We his name's Tom Bell. He's a, he's a retired Texas Ranger, and he was in my third novel, The Right Side of Wrong. And Tom, I, Tom was a, an instrumental character in the in in that novel in helping track down a, a ring of car thieves and and drug dealers. And in in the climax of the novel, we left him shot and bleeding outside of a Mexican prison down south of the border in Chihuahua. And when I left him, I thought he was dead. And, and But every time I go to a, to a signing, people will come up and say, Tom Bell was my favorite character. Why did you kill him off? And finally, I realized that I had made, I had made a grave error. So I went in, in Goldust. I went back and brought Tom Bell back because I never said he was dead. I just said he was shot and bleeding down in Mexico. So now Tom is back, and I think he brings something he, he brings something new to this ensemble cast that I have uh, in the Red River series, and he he fleshes it out even more. So you you learn you learn things as you go. You know you you mentioned C.J. Box just uh, C.J. Box just a minute ago. He's he's a good friend of mine. Uh, and which is it's a glorious thing about being a writer, being in this writing world because you, I've read these guys for years and all of a sudden now I, I've gotten to know them and we 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 build friendships. Well, he he and I were talking one day, and his his Joe Pickett novels follow one year or six month increments, probably one year increments because he wanted to watch his characters grow and his kids grow in in the books. And I thought, well, that's a good idea, and I, I did that too. What I didn't realize is one of the great characters in my Red River books is is not a person, but it is the time period itself in the 1960s of what was going on there. And so with the seven books, I've, re, I've had to compact the, the, the time between books in the last two or three because I'm getting out of the 1960s, and I wish I had compacted it even more so that I could have stayed back in those turbulent years a little bit longer and explore the influences on the times and uh, and the characters themselves. So, yeah, we make we, we make a few mistakes as we go along, but it's not insurmountable. It's just something that I'm going to get to deal with. And, you know, pretty soon uh, my characters are going to have to deal with disco music, I guess. And that's going to be one of the most terrifying books that you've ever read. Nice. I can't wait for the disco. <laughs> Dude, you got – I mean – that's gonna be that's gonna be intense. It it'll be completely different than anything I've done so far. 
Uh, the one I'm working on right now, the follow of the book coming after Goldust, uh, we're, we're, we're titled it Laying Bones, and it's going to be early 1969. So we'll get those years in, uh, the, the events both politically and with the space race and that kind of thing in moon landings and stuff so we'll we'll tie those in but as as the series progresses i'm i'm gonna have to follow it to its to its natural end so we're gonna get into the 70s at some point but but gold dust is 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 um is solidly in late 1968 and you'll 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 hear the music well i mentioned the music that the kids are listening to at that time and, and some of the 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 events unfolding in the world outside of this little tiny community that will ultimately impact everyone. So that's the fun about writing this kind of thing is I get to explore a lot of things. Even though I lived through that time period, I get to revisit and explore that world even further. And that's, that's one of the exciting parts about being a writer also. And and I'm sure that you know that because you talk to writers all the time. John. Yeah. I mean, you know, every writer, it's every writer has their own little difference of, you know, what brings them back and what excites them and, you know, whether it's the characters or, or anything like that. I think a lot of writers always feel excited about the characters because they kind of want to see what they're going to say next. Because, you know, you might sit there and you outline and you go through and you kind of have a story, but you're not really sure what they're going to say next. And, and I think that that's the surprise for you is kind of how your characters are going to treat you um, in the next book. So when book eight comes out, sure, you kind of have an idea and you say, I want to go with this subject matter. Or I want to approach this and I want to kind of do this, but you're not still really sure how it's going <laughs> to, what path you're going to take to get from the beginning to the end. Well, you're absolutely right. And this, and, and I do the thing that terrifies most writers, most authors. I don't outline. I have never out. Well, I tried. I love that though. In the outline after the second page, and, and there, there's a term that they use, and I I, I dislike it. I'm only going to say it once. They call me a pantser. So I fly by the seat of my pants is what they say. Uh, I start out with an idea. I put my fingers on the keyboard and I start writing, and my characters come alive on the screen in front of me, and it's as if you are writing it up there in New York, and it's coming up on my screen I, as if I'm reading it fresh. I have no idea what's going to happen. And frankly, right. I'm, I'm absolutely shocked at, at what, what people say, what they do, and how, as in, as in Goldust here, how four plot lines tie together at the end. There's something you know, something in the back of my mind is working on it all the time, I guess, but it's not sure. conscious. And, and that, that just – Jeffrey Deaver – it just terrifies Jeffrey Deaver to talk about it. He, he looks at me and shakes his head because he he's an, he outlines extensively. Um, he does. My good friend John Gilstrap. Yeah, yeah, John Gilstrap outlines uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Not, to the, not, not as much as, as Jeffrey, but he outlines. So it, to each his own. And, you know, truthfully – my first novel, I didn't even know who the bad guy was until the climactic scene when, when the young 10-year-old boy Top opens his eyes and recognizes who the killer is. And I threw my hands up at that point when I was typing. I said, oh, my God. And my wife, she came in. She goes, what happened? Did, something, did you lose some of your work or what, what's wrong? I said, there's nothing wrong. I know who the killer is now. And she just looked at me. She said, well, you idiot. It's your book. Of course you knew who the killer was. And I said, no, I didn't. I had no No, I didn't know. I thought, you know what you I do the next time? Else. You know, you know what? You tell her this is how Agatha Christie wrote her books. I didn't know this until yeah. recently when I when I read something. Do you know how she wrote her books? No, not at all. She would write the whole thing out, and then she would be like, she would write out the crime, the whole thing, and then she would be like, okay, now I got to figure out who did it. <laughs> so she would because have it down: the setup, the crime, yeah. the whole thing. 
And it wasn't until Perot would reveal that she would stop and then be like, now i got to figure out who did it. And that's something, yeah. yeah. So she had no idea. So she was technically, you know what, she was the first pantser or whatever you want to say because a lot of people call it organic (laughs) writing. But, you know what, Uh it works because, you know, there's a million ways. I don't know if there's a million. Could be a million ways to make a chocolate chip cookie. As long as it's a chocolate chip cookie at the end of the day, who gives a shit yep. how you got there? <laughs> just right? Get there. Who just, gives just a shit how you got there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just give us. Just be entertained because we're in the just entertainment Just be business. a damn good chocolate yep. chip cookie. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's that's the beauty yeah. of, of of what we do. We all love it. Every, every writer is having a great time. Yeah, I mean that's you know you the, uh, Shane and I were talking about artists uh, just yesterday and the sad fact of how our society now views art as just a throwaway thing when it's like, do you realize what art actually is? It's not just a museum and statues and sculptures. It's books. It's movies. It's music. It's architecture. It's all these things that you might take for granted. That's all art, people. The world was founded on art with science still being obtained, but the world was founded entertainmently on art. Art was the way that things had to come about. So for us to throw it away and just be like, oh, you know, I don't want my kid to become an author. I don't want my kid to become a musician. They ain't going to make any money at that. I tell my kids, do whatever you want that wakes you up, that gets you out of bed, do it. If you're good at it, you'll make money at it, and then you'll be extremely happy because now you're doing what you want to do, and you're living on it. Well, there, and you're right. There's nothing better than, than doing what you love, and and yeah. I have always been a, a, a huge reader. I I have several books going at any one time, and but I always knew I wanted to write. And you know, it came from storytelling. You know, you were talking about people. In, in the in the dim mists of, of of the past, they would sit around and tell stories either to remember oh, their their great. history or their people, yeah. Or they would they would they started to make stories up for entertainment. And so what we're doing here, we're not we're not doing it around the campfire. What we're doing is creating something you can hold in your hand, you can read. It's it's it is it's much more involved. It's much richer than uh, a spoken story in many ways, and then you can put it on a shelf and come back and read it again later if you want to. That's why that's one thing I always wanted is to have books on a shelf that would outlive me, that would be here twenty years, thirty years down yeah. the road. And, I, and, and my and I have two daughters that are that are both in education, and they understand that. They see those books with my name on the shelf, and even though I'm going to be gone one of these days, and I'm going to have I'm going to have a little hyphen between my birth date. And my death date on on the tombstone. I wanted more than the hyphen. I wanted something else to leave behind too. And so I'm leaving behind kids and grandkids. I have a grand new brand new grandbaby that showed up a couple of days ago. So they nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got him now, so it makes number seven. But I'll but then they can come back. And he won't be able to remember a whole lot about me as as he gets older. But he can come back someday in 10, 15, 20 years and pick up those books and read and read between the lines and he'll know who I am and what I am at the same time because you, because an author puts themselves in the novel. They may not be based on the author, 
The author creates characters, and I've I've had people get upset with me about about some of the the people that I've created. But I keep telling them it's fiction. It's not me. It's fiction because we're in the entertainment business, and so I am right. out there to, for everybody to to enjoy. But you know, if you think what you read is absolutely 100% me, then you're going to be completely wrong, especially some of my bad guys. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not that bad. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Revis. It's been an absolute pleasure to sit here and speak with you. Love talking with you. We're going to see you next year in Thriller Fest in New York, which will be really great to uh, go back and catch up with everybody. So uh, give everybody real quick the, 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 your website, social media, all the best place to, to find out more about you. All right. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I, you can find me. We do a lot on Facebook. So you can, you can see something new on my Facebook page every day. And uh, it's Revis, R-E-A-V as in Victory, I-S, Wortham, W-O-R-T-H-A-M, or Revis Z. Wortham. I have two pages. One is a personal and one is a, uh author page. If you'd like more detail on the books or more detail about me or where I'm going to be in the future, go to my website at www.revisz.wortham.com. That's a Z as in zebra, revisz.wortham.com. Or you can just get there with revisz.wortham.com. They'll both take you to it. And uh, those are the two best ways. I'm on Twitter, Twitter at revisz.wortham. So I'm on all these. We talk about old-timey words and, and old-timey things that, that come from our past, but at the same time we're talking and, and music and just about any. The only thing we don't touch on is religion, politics, or sex. But if anything else interests you, then come on over and join us because we're having a great time. In fact, I posted some new stuff just today on my Facebook page. John, it's always a pleasure to see you, talk to you. Hey, and Shannon, and uh, I you will tell see Mark. you guys so, Mark, we said hi, and 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 and, uh, and congratulations on getting the gig. Did he do? Did he take over for Graham Brown or Mark Greeny? I I don't know if he's taken over. I think he's just part of the he's part of the team now. Okay, so he's just part of because I know Clancy has different storylines going. I didn't know if which one he was involved in because you know Mark Greeny is writing. You know he writes some, and then Graham Brown uh, was writing some others. And so I know I've seen I saw Mark's name on one that I hadn't had a chance to read yet, but. Yeah. Um, ask him what his word count is. I think it's probably 140,000 he's probably going to go. I think that's what Mark Greeny says that he has to do when he writes a Clancy book. Wow. I know. I know. And, and, you know I, I get up to 114,000. I start getting nervous because I know I'm going to have to Yeah, and then your editor out. says, knock it back to 90, Revis. <laughs> and that's happened many times. I had a yeah, man. All right, dude. You have a good one. Go get some lunch and tell Mark we said hi. Thanks so much. Later, brother. All right. All right. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is Revis Wortham, and the book is called Gold Dust, seventh book in uh, the Red River Mystery Series. Go out and grab that right now. So we want to thank you all for joining us. We've had a fabulous show. Uh, Marin Richards was on here, The Girl Who Wouldn't Die, Revis Wortham, and Gold Dust. Go check out both of those books and uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and listen to us wherever you are, in the car or walking around. Whatever you got to do, we'd love to hear from you, too. You can email us at radio at suspensemagazine.com if you want to know any more information or ask one of the guests a question, and I'll shoot it on over to them and get you an answer. Um, so pretty easy stuff. So until next time, everybody, thank you so much. Keep reading. See you next time.